Hi, I'm Ty Cooper, and this is NJEDA's eConversation. Today, we're incredibly lucky to have a great panel of folks to talk to, starting with the Honorable Lieutenant Governor, Sheila Oliver, who also serves as the Commissioner for the Department of Community Affairs, NJEDA CEO Tim Sullivan, the New Jersey Redevelopment Authority President and CEO Leslie Anderson, and the New Jersey Housing and Mortgage Finance Agency Executive Director, Chuck Richmond. Um, so today we're actually going to talk about COVID and the response that the state has had. New Jersey took a really unique stance on the response for COVID and brought together all of your economic development agencies, departments, really to focus and hone in on an interagency approach to solving the critical issues for small businesses. And so this conversation is going to focus on that. And again, I think as a state, we did better than anybody else in the nation, clearly. But I think it was because we took a holistic you know, all-encompassing approach to assist small businesses for, from every angle. So I'm quickly going to ask everybody to talk about their specific programs. Um, quick overview, but of course, we're going to start with the Honorable Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver. Well, thank you, Ty. And uh, it's a pleasure for me to be uh, on this podcast with all of you, particularly because we have collaborated over these past few months in addressing the needs of the people of New Jersey. So over at DCA, of course, one of the first things that uh, we honed in on in the month of March was the fact that once the governor uh, invoked the moratorium on rent and on mortgages, uh, we knew that going forward, we were going to have to help to support the people of New Jersey in paying their rent. Mm -hmm. We also knew that unemployment was going to spike up and we knew that we would probably begin to see people who historically did not qualify for programs that we operate based on income. We began to uh, cobble together the different sources of funds that we had, particularly the CARES Act funding that came to our agency. And I'm very pleased to say that HUD has been rather generous to us and has allowed us, after our initial appropriation, they have added additional money on so that we could broaden the number of people we serve. Uh, we also um, increased uh, funding for those who were at risk of being homeless. And uh, I am so proud of our Division of Housing and Community Resources because they had to amp up programs overnight, and it's a really big endeavor. We brought on uh, temporary employees to man a call center. People could apply right online, but we also know some people aren't, you know, not a savvy digital divide. So I'm one of those people. <laughs> yes. So the call center was designed to have people call in, and we had staff that would uh, help them uh, over, uh, you know, the phone. And then, you know, we always operated a utility assistance program and the uh, feds under CARES appropriated an additional $29 million to DCA. So we are amply uh, positioned to help people pay their utility bills. I, I think that's phenomenal. And just recently, I think it was last Friday, you guys announced a series of new programs. $7.1 million for the Neighborhood Preservation Program, the Neighborhood Revitalization Tax Credit, and then also um, NPP. So these are phenomenal things that you guys are doing. And again, it comes from everything from housing assistance, really to supporting small businesses and those on Main Street. So incredibly excited for the work that DCA is doing. 
Um, Mr. Sullivan, there's been a lot of work also done at EDA. You guys had to start quickly and roll programs out. I think it was since May. Can you talk about what you've been doing at EDA? Well, you called me Mr. So I'm worried I'm in trouble already, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, first of all, it's what an honor to be on a, a great uh, a podcast and, and, and group led by the Lieutenant Governor and and Leslie and Chuck. Uh, great to be with, with you all as well. Look, I think um, one of the things I've been most struck by across the administration is the way Governor Murphy and Lieutenant Governor Oliver have recognized that one, first and foremost, this is a public health crisis and we need to do whatever we need to do to save all the lives we can save and protect the vulnerable populations that that need help now more than ever. But right behind it, it's an economic crisis that manifests for, you know, renters who can't make their rent, small businesses that can't make payroll, uh, people that can't afford to buy groceries because they're unemployed. That, that, that's, that has to be, a, you know, right in parallel with the public health objectives has to be um, you know, our, our foremost uh, policy goals is just to help as many people and as many businesses that employ people get through this as best they can until the clouds part and, you know, times are better again. And um, I, I think we were well set up to, to, to have the kind of approach we've taken, not just at the EDA, but across the, the entire administration, because the way the governor and the lieutenant governor have operated from day one in this administration, which is to say, have the agencies work really well together. You know, mm -hmm. the, four, the, the lieutenant governor and Leslie and Chuck and I and lots of others talk all the time in groups and individually about how we can partner together and, you know, uh, have our teams know each other well enough. So when it's when it's showtime, it's not like we're meeting everybody for the first time and trying to figure out how to collaborate. It's it's the habit of collaboration. Um, so I think that served us all and most importantly served the people of the state really well. Uh, we've really been focused uh, at, within the EDA's walls um, on uh, supporting small business as best we can, both the very and, and really focusing on the smallest businesses that don't have access to lots of the federal programs in particular. So the CARES Act and the SBA programs are, you know, brought billions of dollars, but that went to kind of what a lot of people would consider kind of mid-sized businesses. What we've been really able to focus on is really small businesses. The average size of our grants has been to businesses with slightly under three employees, who, which add up all those businesses. They employ a lot of New Jerseyans, but they don't, you know, it's, it's businesses no one's ever heard of except for the neighborhood folks that, you know, rely on those businesses. Um, and so we've been really trying to focus our efforts as far sort of down the size chain as we can, because that's where that's where the, uh, the those businesses went into a recession or a, a crisis like this with the fewest resources to begin with and have access to fewer resources to survive. And we know, sadly, uh, but incontrovertibly, those businesses are disproportionately owned by uh, owned by and serviced, uh, provide services to communities of color and low income communities generally. And so we know we've got a, a justice crisis in the middle of the public health and economic crisis as well. So that's really where we've been uh, directed to focus by the governor, lieutenant governor. That's excellent. We're going to get to a question about just kind of the disparities and what resources we're pulling into businesses. But I want to quickly pivot over to uh, Ms. Leslie Anderson with the New Jersey Redevelopment Authority. You guys set up a really great program and have been severely oversubscribed. Um, let's talk about the program that you guys launched. Absolutely, Ty. And I'm excited to be here with the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Tim and Chuck. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the uh, cross-collaboration between DCA and the NJRA. The Lieutenant Governor serves as the chair of our board. So that level of partnership and collaboration is not only uh, in terms of, of who we are as individuals, it's also legislatively designed to make sure that there's connection between departments and agencies. Uh, the NJRA uh, works in 64 historically underserved communities. And Tim, you're correct. Most of these communities house businesses 
and people of color. And they are at a disadvantage. They're, They're underserved. So, so what we did was look at opportunities to create a program. And Ty, what we were able to do was look at businesses from a non-traditional perspective. Uh, many times we focus on a number of employees, mm -hmm. but we focused on impact. Mm -hmm. And we looked at those businesses and how they were being served by the CARES Act. And we created a program that focused on square footage and rental space. We, we did not necessarily look at the tradition of number of employees. And that was because these businesses operate in a non-traditional space. They don't necessarily structure themselves to where we see uh, mainstream businesses. And while the efforts of EDA were very important, there was still what we recognized. And because of the collaboration, we understood it, that there was still a population that wasn't being served. So we created a program that would be impactful and could address a different need. And what that did for the administration under the leadership of Governor Murphy and, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Oliver was to make sure that every need could be met, that we weren't looking at uh, creating programs that only fit one population, that because we connect, we collaborate, and we talk, mm -hmm. and I think that's the most important aspect, we could develop programming that could meet needs across the board and that we had an understanding of what was out there that wasn't being met. So it wasn't that anyone did anything better than the other. It was that we came together, we identified a need, and collaboratively, we figured out how to meet that need. And I know we're going to go into uh, a little more detail, but one thing that, that I do want to say is that the average size of the business we service was just 2,500 square feet. So that's a very, very, very small business. And uh, while we didn't track number of employees, most of them had five or fewer uh, employees. So we did get down to uh, that business, that what I would call a micro, micro business. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, what the stories we're hearing, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, they were on the verge of closing. And the state of New Jersey through the NJRA came through with this resource, but it's the partnership that allows that to happen. It is not an individual accolade. No, I agree 100%. And I think to that, the program that complements you so well is that that they're doing over at um, HMFA under the leadership of Chuck Richmond. You want to give us a quick overview of your program? Sure, Ty. Thank you. And and you know, I, I think all the introductions and and everyone in their initial. Uh, words talked about working together and sounds like a mutual admiration society and maybe to some extent it is because we it has worked extremely well and and i think we've each played a part in filling in gaps i'd like to just quickly talk about two activities we've had even before the federal government passed the cares act mm -hmm. uh, we undertook an expansion of our forbearance program both for owners of multifamily dwellings and for more importantly for homeowners uh, on their mortgages. Right now, about 9% of all the mortgages that HMFA has issued are in some form of forbearance. And uh, our expectation is that in, in now mirroring the federal program, uh, homeowners uh, can be comfortable that they'll stay in their home, we're not gonna Excellent. foreclose on them, and that we'll add to the end of the mortgage the possible repayment uh, schedule 
so they're not burdened immediately upon the end of, of the emergency and being forced then to try and pay what could be many months of, of payments. Um, and and we're, one of the, to the credit of, of the folks who have mortgages with, uh, notwithstanding they've applied for forbearance, many are making payments. Some partial payments, some full. So, you know, people are trying to do what they have to do, but obviously because of the uh, unemployment, uh, many are not able to. So this has been a wonderful success. The other program uh, that that we believe fits so well within the other uh, activities that have just been mentioned is our small landlord uh, emergency grant program. It's targeted to owners of, of properties between three and 30 units. And it, it's to be kind of a front end to the programs that DCA is running. So while DCA's assistance in, in paying rent started on uh, on August 1st, for the four month period prior to that, we are reimbursing owners of the of the units I just mentioned or the buildings I just mentioned for the difference between their leases that they have with their tenants and the amount of rent that they actually collected. And, and this group is, is uh, primarily owners, two thirds of, of the uh, landlords are either, either individuals, individuals or family owned. Yeah. This isn't corporate development. This is someone who files a, you know, an income tax form that you and I file, you know, the 1040, and uh, it's it's often a business, but it could be a very very often from what we're hearing, it's a side business. And so it's targeted toward uh, those owners. It also has the benefit fifty percent of the owners, and there's some forty six thousand such uh, uh, developments. Fifty percent are in ten urban communities. Mm. so it's it's clearly targeted to communities that, where there's been a severe impact. Uh, the studies out of the Harvard uh, School uh, uh, Housing uh, Institute finds that these are the owners most dramatically affected uh, by, by the COVID-19 and uh, we're here to help. I think I think that's excellent. Uh, before we get on to the issue around disparities and kind of what we need to do, Chuck, you mentioned an important point. It was a quick change in one of your programs where you guys went from I think it was from three to ten units to up to thirty now. And this question really is for everyone um, going through this process. What are some of the, the key needs or findings you've seen, and how is your organization pivoting to kind of address those immediate needs? And Chuck, I'm going to start with you. Um, just because as you rolled out your program, a, a quick change was made. So I think that's really helpful. And then Tim will we'll go over to you. Yeah, you know, and I, I've i been in state government an awfully long time and through a number of crises. And, and the important thing is to be able to pivot and make changes as you move along to, to meet circumstances. So uh, the initial program was between three and 10 units mm -hmm. and, and was fairly rigid in requiring uh, inspection records and, and a variety of other up, upfront activities. We found that the small business owners had a great deal of trouble submitting those do that documentation. And there was confusion about uh, registration numbers and the like. And so we quickly pivoted to, we're going to use the address. 
that's going to be the common denominator. And we're not going to worry about whether you, your 10 digit registration number was properly administered. We, we also very quickly heard from members of, of the small the small business community that while there is a need in the three to 10, there's another group that's slightly larger that's impacted and, and primarily again in the 50 in the 10 communities I mentioned uh, are, are, represent 50% of these households. And so we quickly expanded the program to, to meet that demand. Uh, the important thing is, and I think we've all been able to do this, is you've got to pivot quickly to, to, the, to the need, not to the rigidness that some federal and state programs often uh, exhibit. The exciting thing is government actually moving quickly, which doesn't always happen, but to respond immediately to these needs. So I, I open the question up to the floor to Tim, the Lieutenant Governor, or to um, to Leslie. But again, I think as we recognize during these programs, and now I didn't realize it, it's, it's almost eight months. Like, is it is it eight months? We've been going through this. And so for, for those that want to answer how your organization is pivoting or things that you're doing, would love your feedback now. Um, Ty, at the NJRA, uh, we ran into a similar issue as Chuck, and it's centered on the tax clearance certificate. So mm -hmm. we're out front saying that businesses needed to have that, not realizing that within the Division of Taxation, there was very limited staff to deal with what ended up being 6,000 applications coming through the NJRA and probably three times that number that had come through EDA or four times that number. So what we were able to do was to pull it behind the scenes mm. and not put the burden on the applicant to get that information. And we worked collaboratively with EDA, the Division of Taxation, to handle it uh, behind the scenes. But what I will also wanna add to Chuck's point is, in addition to pivoting, we listened. So yeah. what we're hearing from these very, very small businesses is that when if there's another shutdown they were weak on the side of e-commerce so you know that uh, eda and njra have been working uh, to provide technical assistance to businesses on e-commerce mm -hmm. so should there be another shutdown or not even if it's not they needed to be able to improve their ability to work on an e-commerce platform. So we're providing uh, technical assistance right now to what I'm now, I'm creating a new term. Uh, I want credit for it. It's called the micro, micro, micro business. Uh, but we're helping them because, you know, they didn't have curbside opportunity. They didn't have online sale opportunities and they really didn't know how to do it. So, and I've spoken to some businesses that are very appreciative of the support they're receiving uh, from us. Uh, and, and one of the things that we did do was we repurposed, uh, Lieutenant Governor, the training institute to fit this need. So we had that platform set up. Uh, EDA is, is partnering and bringing the consultants in, but we're using that platform to help these businesses get some serious technical assistance. So money is important. I, I would never negate that, but so is technical assistance. If I don't understand how to do it, it doesn't matter how much money you give me because I'm not going to be able to run my business effectively. So kudos again to the partnership on this call for our ability to quickly shift and change and pull something together to meet a need that we were hearing as we were out in the community doing our outreach. And then quickly, uh, Lieutenant Governor Tim, do you wanna add anything or can I move on to the next question? Do you wanna add? 
Yeah, I just want to emphasize what Leslie described. And for a long time, many of our uh, our efforts to help uh, businesses in communities of color has been the tedious and burdensome bureaucracy of accessing resources. And for years, I have advocated for the state to set up regional technical assistance programs. Mm -hmm. Our business owners don't comb newspapers looking for a bid advertisement. They don't go county by city to find out where procurement opportunities are. So I hope that we can build upon what the uh, NJRA is doing, because I think that will help us connect small minority businesses to resources in the state government. Yeah, the, one, the, only, the only thing I'd add, um, I agree with everything that, uh, that everyone said. I think um, we've also, I'm glad Leslie mentioned the um, uh, e-commerce uh, dimensions. I would also give the state government and, and uh, the administration pretty good grades on the degree to which we've rapidly accelerated our technology use mm -hmm. and deployment. Uh, one of the unsung heroes uh, in this uh, in this response is, is Beth Novak, who's the state's chief innovation officer, and her team. Um, I know within our programs at the EDA, we've we've we we've in 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 intake intook intooked um, <laughs> more than fifty thousand five zero thousand applications, plus or minus without any technology hitches. I, I'm sure that you know we would have heard about it if uh, if Chuck and Leslie and the Lieutenant Governor's programs had had this had any challenges so you're probably looking at 100 150,000 applications coming in electronically without a hitch that didn't happen just by accident that's because you know we invested in that technology we we set up processes like Leslie described that automated some of the behind the scenes stuff so that we were able to share data between taxation and department of labor and other folks so we could just sort of have everything plug and play and that's again i think it's a uh, in the silver line into a crisis, sometimes you get to sort of break through some traditional uh, bureaucracy, to use the lieutenant governor's words, uh, and just, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. We're doing this thing because uh, we need it because the constituents need it. And I think that's been a we, we will build on that when peacetime returns. That, that's excellent. So we're going to pivot to a question I know that has come up nationally. Um, and I know that the state has done a really phenomenal job on focusing on um, communities of color, especially Black and Latinx businesses, have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, um, and especially those that are in underserved communities. What evidence are you seeing of that within your respective programs, and what steps are your organizations doing to assist um, people that need it most? And then I'll, I'll start out with the lieutenant governor, because you sit at such a high perch over the states. You're hearing the concerns. You're in constant contact with our congressional members and our state legislators, so you know there's an issue. Um, so how is the state pivoting? And then as com as commissioner and lieutenant governor, how are you taking on, on that mantle? It's a heavy one. So how are you addressing that? Yeah, well, you know, this has been my passion and my work for most of my professional career. I knew immediately that the issue of maintaining housing was going to be a major challenge for people in New Jersey. And as I said earlier, not just low and moderate income families, but families across the board because of the increase in unemployment. Very similarly to uh, Leslie and Chuck, we went uh, live with the application process for rental assistance for a two week period. We received 60,000 applications. Wow. Uh, ranging from one end of the state to the other end of the state. And uh, again, the staff 
phenomenal because we had to do a quick turnaround of the review of those applications for assistance. Um, we also uh, targeted uh, the disabled community and those uh, with cha with challenges and made certain we had separate programs and pots of funding for that population, as well as our veterans and our elderly. So uh, from the feedback we got from constituents, that guided us to tailor and change programs and interventions to meet the needs uh, of the people that we, we were serving. We also did significant outreach. Uh, we traveled around the state with uh, virtuals and Zooms and uh, with uh, thought leaders and civic leaders uh, across the state to make them aware of uh, what the state could do to help. Uh, we also uh, began to outreach with local public housing authorities. Excellent. And while um, you know they have subsidy and subsidized rents, uh, many of the people in public housing had challenges as well. Food insecurity was a big thing for us, even though we are a housing agency. So utilizing uh, community services block grant funding that we have, we partnered with all of the uh, low, uh, well, they were called anti-poverty agencies back in the day, but they're called community action programs. Mm -hmm. We were able to provide additional funding to the CAP agencies all around the state, awesome. and we were able to appropriate money to the food banks all across the state to make certain that people did not go hungry. And, uh, you know, we, we also were concerned about undocumented communities and we collaborated with other entities to address that. Um, so, you know, we the challenge was there. And, you know, as everyone knows, uh, COVID-19 disproportionately affected uh, low-income and minority communities. And even if we look at the deaths from COVID, disproportionate. And a lot, a lot of that has to do with uh, housing. Uh, I remember early on during the pandemic uh, receiving a call from someone telling me, you know, uh, in Trenton, they're enforcing, you know, very hard people loitering and standing outside buildings and et cetera. And the woman said to me, have you ever visited an apartment in a public housing development in the city of Trenton? You will have a whole family and sometimes an extended family living in no more than 550 square feet. Okay. Um, and I think that um, we're very pleased that many housing authorities can now get funding from the feds to demolish that 1950s model of what subsidized housing should be wow. and creating living spaces for families. So we were able to learn that information as well as a result of the pandemic. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor. I love that I always get like a little bit of a history lesson as well anytime <laughs> I'm around you. So thank you, but like, the historical context does feed so much into present day. Um, Tim, we're gonna talk also about EDA, what you guys have done. Um, to address these issues. And again, whether it's veterans, disabled, communities of color, how, what is EDA doing to address these critical concerns? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, like Lieutenant Governor said it so well that this is a crisis that is uh, both on the health side and the economic side disproportionately impacting um, communities of color. Um, and I think part of what we've uh, tried to do, and I'm not sure we've, I'm not ready to declare success or, or, or progress, but what we've been trying to do is 
be honest and recognize that part of the way we move forward and grow is that recognizing that the EDA in particular has not had a reach that is as deep, as broad, and as inclusive as it needs to. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a, that. That shouldn't be a surprising statement to hear, but maybe it is anyway. But you know, I, I think I think we've got to do better, and this crisis has remi- has accelerated our need to do that in a way that's kind of you know counterintuitively constructive because it means we've been able to make some change and make some progress. So our outreach, you know, we don't typically deal with more than a couple hundred businesses in any given year. We are, as we sit here right now, on the precipice of having supported twenty thousand businesses wow. in six or seven months, whatever it's been. So the scale of what we're doing is hugely uh, expanded, and, and we're, we're so far so, so far we've made some progress on 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 broadening and diversifying and, and bringing more inclusion to the table as it relates to who we're serving and who we're supporting. Um, so Ty, I'm telling you things you know because you and your team have done all the work on this. But we've we made a huge push around outreach um, to uh, well, first of all, we made a huge push to. Um, reserve some of our funds for the grant program that we're running for businesses located in opportunity zone eligible census tracts. That's an imperfect, but the best idea we could come up with, and it was Ty's idea, so I'll give her all the credit for it, of how to target money to communities of color without having to be able to do a set aside and get in trouble with the feds for uh, doing a set aside. Um, And that is, I think we reserved a third of the funding for that. That means something like 20, 25% of the funds in the grant program uh, have gone to women-owned businesses. About the same amount has gone to um, uh, businesses owned by uh, people of color. Again, we'd like to do more, but that's a, compared to the much lower percentages for the federal programs. I feel good about that uh, relative um, uh, contribution. And then we've also we we spent a lot of time on outreach, and so uh, we we contracted with three firms, each of which were each of which were one or more of. Uh, Woman, minority, or LGBT, uh, uh, LGBT-owned businesses, small businesses themselves, to really expand our outreach because that's not something we've been focused on. It's a shame on us. We should have been, but we weren't, and now we are. Um, and so that's something we're we're making a real intentional and strong push around. That again, I think will be with us forever in a good way. Uh, you, you never, you, you hopefully, we never not having that kind of focus. And the, one of the other changes that happened, I think it was in the last round was the expansion of eligibility for nonprofits, which also included veterans. And and that's a really important point. Can you just give a quick shout out to the Congressman Kim and then also to the Senator who were helpful in pushing this forward as well? I think it's important to acknowledge that work. Yeah, um, this was a bit of making, uh, again, when you screw something up, you gotta, uh, when we were setting the eligibility rules, we, we sort of drew a circle around some nonprofit groups and said, uh, based on what we thought federal law said, they couldn't be eligible to get these grants. And we were pointed out that our assessment was not correct. And uh, Congressman Kim, uh, uh, who's such a great advocate for for veterans in his district and across the country, uh, pointed that out to us very helpfully, as did Senator Gopal, who chairs the Senate Veterans Committee, if I have that correct. Also, <laughs> let, let us know some of those concerns, and we fixed it. And so we made sure that groups like VFW Halls and uh, mm-hmm. other uh, veterans organizations and, and other, you know, um, community and, and service organizations uh, could get access to these funds because certainly wasn't anyone's intention to exclude anybody and we wanted to be as inclusive as we could but uh, we kind of called it wrong fixed it before we launched and off we went and then one thing i'll just add on the back end of that i think it's so important on all ends the reason we're asking what did you do how have you course corrected it's important for folks to know that government doesn't always get it right but when you do understand what the needs are you make it better and so that's the reason I wanted to hit upon that point, because I think it's so critical. And the amount of support we received from everyone from Assemblywoman Cleopatra Tucker, who chairs the Veterans Committee on the Assembly side, was also in really big support as well. So this is really, really great. Um, so Leslie, let's talk quickly about NJRA 
NJRA serves a diverse community. What folks don't know is it includes everything from Newark and Irvington to also Nutley and Belleville. And I know Nutley was pushing really hard for their businesses. So let's talk about how you address the diverse needs. And again, this is from Nutley. I think it's also Weehawken is included down to Irvington, the uh, Irvington, Norks, and East Orange. So you had a really um, diverse, which people didn't know at first, a really diverse population that you were working with, but you've been pushing for these issues since your tenure at NJRA. So we'd love to know what you're doing along those fronts um, for diversity initiatives. Sure. I just want to shout out South Jersey. A lot of times we think about um, Camden, but we hit Millville, Vineland, Lindenwald. There are a number of uh, Salem, a number of Southern uh, New Jersey communities that have different needs because they're not urban, they're rural. But the demographics start to look the same in those communities. One of the things that I didn't say earlier, but I want to say is that uh, the pandemic took the NJRA completely out of its comfort zone. Mm -hmm. We do not normally work directly with small businesses. We build and finance the facilities mm -hmm. the small business goes into. But what we understood early at the outset was that we had to do something. Uh, so we made a pitch for the um, CARES Act money to support businesses with their rent. Tim, it was actually on one of the uh, calls for the restart and recovery that we heard the impact on minority-owned businesses that weren't going to open. And what we felt was they needed help paying their rent. That was that simple. They needed to pay their rent. They weren't protected. They weren't covered. And if they didn't get money immediately to pay their rent, they weren't going to be there when we go to what we want to call post-COVID. Uh, so a couple of things we did, and uh, I want to thank EDA because sometimes you do follow the leader. And um, in this case, we were inclusive of the nonprofits because mm -hmm. we just we just did 501c and didn't add the it. Mm -hmm. uh, we also pulled in two of the three firms that you uh, worked with uh, to uh, do the marketing and the outreach, which was critical. Mm -hmm. uh, and one shout out, absolutely. I want to shout out Ross Dakin at the Office of Innovation because he built the system for us that did allow it to be completely automated. But I want to pause here for a second. I don't want to talk too long. What we learned um, in the uh, in the communities that we served is that when these folks were going online to fill out their applications, they were actually doing it on their cell phones, wow. which made the upload of the documents very difficult. So we established a call center. And when they started to call the call center in a panic saying, I can't upload my documents, we pivoted and allowed them to email them in. Uh, so they, we gave them 48 hours to get to a computer to upload the documents that they needed. And that was us learning that was the direct outreach with the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So they told us that that was an issue. Just really quickly, I want to hit some of the demographics. 90% of our outreach were minority-owned, 55% were women-owned, and 3% were veteran-owned. So that's the good news. Some more good news. 99% were in good standing with the state of New Jersey, which means that while they had a non-traditional structure, they had paid their taxes to the state of New Jersey. So, so they were there. However, this is the not so good news. Two out of every three applicants that applied for our program had not received any prior funding. 
And it's important to note that we launched on August 10th. And these were small businesses that up to that point had either not received and not qualified for any CARES Act funding that had been made available. But we were able to address it. And thank you to the support of the governor and the lieutenant governor. While we're significantly oversubscribed, we did in the budget have an additional $4 million and we are working feverishly uh, to do our due diligence uh, to get those resources the street to those business owners as quickly as possible. That's awesome. And Chuck, I'm going to turn it over to you um, to talk about how you guys are addressing some of these disparity issues. And again, I know that you guys are also using some of the same um, marketing teams we have, but would love to talk about the work that you are doing in those areas. Yeah. Um, thank you to, to EDA and Tim and, and you for finding three firms to help market <laughs> that uh, we just followed your your lead and, and it worked out uh, remarkably well. And in fact, we, we've developed a longer term relationship now with Univision, where oh, Univision is going to continue to work with us on uh, marketing our single family home loan programs. Uh, but getting back to the, to the uh, Tim used the, the word imperfect in terms of trying to measure uh, the impact and getting into neighborhoods that have been underserved and we probably because the the department of community affairs has records on landlords above three units uh, we had a fair amount of insight into where our program was going to work as i said 50 percent of the landlords are in 10 urban communities mm -hmm. and, and we did that based upon the data we had we also limited the uh, the, the owners that could apply to those that had maximum rents that were uh, available to low and moderate income households. So it was a target to low and moderate income uh, individuals. And, and that has worked very well. Um, the average application is running between five and six thousand uh, dollars per applicant. And, and, it, and, and the targeting is at that $1,500 per month uh, rental. So I, I think we've had a really high level of success getting into communities, certainly that HMFA has never worked with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the standard is we hardly look at you if you're not building 50 units of housing. Uh, and so it's a, it, it's a community that, that was important. The other thing I'd just like to quickly touch on we were very concerned at the beginning that our regular business wouldn't be followed through as we pivoted to doing the emergency work. So we separated our staff and made sure the the regular activities of lending, particularly in the multifamily area, continues. And, and uh, we just closed an application process for what are called 9% tax credits. It's a way of providing equity, 70% of which is needed to build affordable housing. Um, we received 41 applications. We can fund 20 projects. It, it will equal, those 20 projects will provide somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million worth of construction of new housing, and will provide somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 new units and Lieutenant Governor gets to announce that probably the first week of December. So it's 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 building upon the important 
activities that this administration has focused on uh, of doing more housing, getting more built, and and uh, between that and, and what are called four percent tax credits, we will, notwithstanding the the uh, pandemic, we're going to hit probably around four thousand, maybe a little bit higher than that units, either re substantially rehabbed or new construction announcements this year. Thank you so much. And again, this is eConversations with NJEDA. And once again, New Jersey has had a wraparound all agencies at the forefront approach when it comes to addressing the devastating impacts of COVID-19. But again, to this team, you've done a stellar job. Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver, NJEDA, CEO Tim Sullivan, CEO Leslie Anderson from NJRA, and Executive Director um, Charles Richmond from HMFA. So thank you all again for taking the time to explain your phenomenal programs. Thank you to your teams for the work they're doing. And thank you for taking time for this e-conversations. Have a great day.